If you would, take your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please take your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The monitors might be a little hot up here. As we are singing, O Great God, I was thinking about Psalm 147, verse 3 and 4, where it talks about God binding the wounds of the brokenhearted, mending those hearts that are struggling. And then the very next verse, it talks about our God who names the stars and knows them. What an incredible God we have that is so in tune to the intimate heart pains of our lives, but yet knows so much more than we could ever fathom. Knows so much more than we could ever believe to comprehend that He can name the stars, not even just number the stars. He can name the stars and rehearse them. What an incredible God that we worship this morning. And I, my prayer is that we will just see Christ maybe just a little bit more vividly this morning and we, our hearts would know and love Christ and please Christ today. We've turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and maybe you this morning would, would as you look back to your childhood, maybe you've grown out of this stage, but maybe you enjoyed going to the theme park, the carnival, the fair when they came into town. And you enjoyed roller coasters. Um, all the adults just groaned and said, no, not any longer. Well, um, there is something extremely exciting about when I remember when I finally enjoyed, when I was finally tall enough to go on a roller coaster. Something thrilling. You sit into the roller coaster, they strap you in, and then the, the ticking going up the first climb of this, this mix, strange mixture of fear and excitement. Uh, what's going to happen? How am I going to respond? Who's going to throw up? I mean, it's all very exciting. And then you get to the top, and then there is this moment of great plummeting as the, the, the hill turns downward. You can't see the track anymore. And you have this great excitement as you drop. Your stomach literally goes up into your chest. For some of us, that's very bad. And you enjoy the ride. The corkscrews, the worldly rules, and everything else that happens on a roller coaster. I think we could probably all agree on this fact. And maybe you don't find them enjoyable, but, but the purpose of a roller coaster is to be enjoyable. Now, the only problem is when life begins to get described as a roller coaster, that is not fun. When, when your life and my life begins to have the surprises, the turns and twistings, the surprises of round corners, that is not what life is supposed to be like. And we don't really find that fun. And maybe you would describe your life today as a roller coaster. You would, 
describe the moments that are happening now and you say, man, I, I feel like my life is, is a bit of a roller coaster. Well, the, if I could maybe put it in our vernacular, the, the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense to the roller coaster type life that is going on in his life. Paul's defense was that he actually and rightfully was an apostle of Jesus Christ, even though there were, there were many people that were looking at him and looking at all the hardships he had, and they said, surely you cannot be apostle of Jesus Christ and, 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 and spirit-filled with all the difficulties that are happening in your life. Surely this doesn't make sense. And Paul actually comes back and says, no, actually the difficulties give credence to the reality that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Surely, they were saying that the, 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 the Corinth church, surely the difficulty, difficulties reveal that you can't be right with God. And so Paul pens the book of 2 Corinthians to declare his confidence in God despite the challenges and afflictions of life. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, have difficulties and afflictions of life? All of us do. All of us have heartaches and burdens, and we live of sort maybe every day, a, a bit of a roller coaster life. And that does not mean our confidence in God must be shaken, but rather, we can still have a, a, a steady heart of confidence in our God, as, as Paul demonstrates. How does he demonstrate that in the book of 2 Corinthians? Well, in, in, ch in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us into triumphal possession, and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. Or like in 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Or notice the hardships of Paul's life that he goes into great detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was ship, shipwrecked, at night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, a hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Paul did not have the most ideal life. I mean, you look at this life and you're saying, wow, I really don't want to sign up for that. But how does Paul respond after he, he prayed three times in chapter 12, pleading with the Lord to remove, remove the thorn of his flesh? He, Christ says to him, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response to all this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
In our lingo, the lingo I'm, the vernacular I'm using this morning, we could say that Paul lived this roller coaster life, this affliction based life. But Paul remained confident in God. The two are not connected. And so often that is where we find our error. When we connect the afflictions, the difficulties, the hardships, the disappointments of our life, and we connect them to our confidence in God, that is where we find an error. And Paul, how does Paul do this? How could Paul endure these struggles and difficulties of life when life was so hard? Maybe more applicable to us is how can we endure the next step when it seems so confusing or the questions of why that keep painfully echoing in our mind. Paul had something resolved in his life that can never be taken away in the storm of life. We find this in 2 Corinthians chapter, tw- uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul knew how to live his life and that was a life pleasing to the Lord. So this morning, our focus will be to see that through the roller coaster of life, our constant mission is to please the Lord. First of all, we need to understand further 2 Corinthians chapter 5 before we get to our main verse, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. With Paul having so much affliction, the possibility of Paul's life coming to an end before Christ coming back was becoming a greater and greater possibility. In other books that Paul had written, he seemed to indicate that he believed Christ was going to come back. He was going to be raptured and see the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it almost seems to indicate in 2 Corinthians that this was no longer the case. And as he he begins to talk about the spiritual dwelling, the the reality of a tent, our earthly home, our human body, and his desire to be in a spiritual dwelling, a permanent home, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2, this is what he says. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I imagine Paul, a tent maker by occupation, making tents, repairing those leather tents that had been ruined or uh, broken down by the weather or mistreatment. And he is repairing these tents and he draws an appropriate application and illustration to our own bodies. Here he is weaving a tent, trying to fix it, but it is not a permanent location. Maybe he glanced over to a home that was, was, was permanent and you look at the structure and it's not movable. It's not exposed to the wind and the cold and the rain. Maybe you've you've gone camping in a tent before. And there are a few things that are can can um, 
ruin a camping trip like being caught out in a thunderstorm or waking up with snow on your tent or having some other element of nature strike in the middle of the night and you wake up in a pond in your tent. Well, the reality is we experience the elements, we experience the weaknesses of our own body even more uh, more clearly when we are in a tent. I remember my my brother-in-law, we went camping once up in North Carolina, and it was Christmas time, and I thought it was going to be a lot warmer, but that night, got about down to 32 degrees, 33 degrees, it was by a river, and so it was kind of damp. And one thing I forgot that was different than camping in the summer was that the sun goes down a lot earlier. So here we are by the, the campfire, and we look at our watches, it's about 7 o'clock, and we're like, well, now what? <laughs> it's dark, there's nothing to do, we're sitting by the campfire, we, we've already eaten our supper. And so we ended up going to bed at a very early hour of like 9 o'clock, not much else to do. And I remember in the middle of the night, my brother-in-law woke up, and I just heard this moaning. And my brother-in-law is a pretty strong dude. He's, he's not um, wimpy in any way. And he, I just hear this moaning from him. And I'm like, hey, man, what's, what's up? I feel like I'm going to throw up. He's cold. He was shivering. I asked him, what time is it? Oh, it's about 11 o'clock. And I remember just rolling over and going back to sleep. <laughs> But I remember that night, it exposed the frailties of our body because we're exposed to the weather, exposed to the cold. These bodies are exposed to the hardships of this earth. We're exposed to the hardship of this sin-cursed globe. And maybe you find yourself even today thinking, I cannot wait to be in my, the, the, the permanent structure. I no longer will groan to be in heaven. I, Paul is saying that. So even in light of the groaning and the affliction of life, Paul says, we are of good courage. What does he say in verse 6 to 8? He says, we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Notice, home is referred to being in the body, and then in verse 8, home is referred to being with the Lord. Both places are actually considered being home. And so wherever the Lord puts us, wherever the Lord places us in His sovereign plan of life and death, that is where we find ourselves. And no matter the afflictions and those afflictions that cause this groaning of life to be with the Lord, the difficulties of life, we are at home because that is where the Lord has placed us. In his, in his sovereign plan of life. And Paul says, in spite of this, in, in, in the midst of all this, we are of good courage. We're confident of what the Lord's doing. Either we are in residence on earth or we're residents in heaven. We stand courageously and confidently. So when that hardship hits your life, 
Maybe you wonder if you made a mistake. You wonder you'll miss out on a better life. You'll wonder what bad things happen. Paul lived his life courageously in the face of difficulty, disappointment, affliction, and hardship. Now this is all the backdrop to to verse 9. That is really the, 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 the crux of how Paul lived all of his life. How does he do this? Chapter 5, verse 9 says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul lived his entire life in, the, in light of the hope that his actions will bring delight to God. Paul lived every day in midst of the affliction, the hardship, that his actions during life will bring delight to God. His highest aim, his highest aspiration, his highest ambition of life was, I just want Jesus to be pleased with what I do. That is the constant thread of everything that Paul did. And so no matter if a difficulty comes in your life, no matter if there's a surprise, no matter if hardship is at your door, there's a constant theme that, that, that echoes throughout the believer's life, and that is, I will please Jesus no matter what. I will please the Lord. And that is why I live my life to please Christ. An incredible Biblical example of this is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6. We know this chapter, some, some of you may know this as the, the hall of faith. It talks about, by faith, this person did this. By faith, this person did this. But in verse 5 and 6, it gives an incredible example of Enoch. Enoch was actually taken by God before he saw death in Genesis chapter 5. And God had taken them. He says this in halfway through verse 5. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So pleasing God isn't just, okay, I'm going to really please God today. But there is an absolute faith that must be in the goodness and the character of God and that this will work out wonderfully in the life of the believer. This harmonizes so clearly with what Pastor Jonathan is teaching in chapter 8. There is faith that is necessary in the life of the believer that says, I will please God. So even though there's an affliction that comes, even though there's hardship, there's this exercising of faith that says, even in this, I will please the Lord. And so what difficulty you have in your life, what thing that may keep you up at night, May you and I exercise the faith to say, I will please the Lord. 
George Balanchin is one of the, the greatest, so-called, I'm no expert on this by any means, so I've read, is one of the greatest 20th century ballet choreographers. He was the famed co-founder and longtime ballet master of the New York Ballet Company. And to the dancers of the New York City Ballet Company, they viewed George as both director and audience. They so loved and so esteemed and, and they heard him so loudly that no matter how large the crowd applauded them, no, how, no matter how great the, the audience was, they really only danced for one audience, and that was Mr. B. And the, authentic, uh, the, the enthusiastic applause from beyond the lights meant very little if Mr. B was not pleased. So to focus and to live for Christ, we must allow him to become our director of sorts. And I think we do that often. We want to make Christ our director. We are eager to look in the Bible and to know what we want uh, for us to do. We want to know his will. We want to follow his word. But often we find our pleasure somewhere else. Oh, that we might find our joy in pleasing Jesus Christ and so that He is the one audience for that we serve and minister and live. So no matter what difficulty comes, we have the constant theme of pleasing Christ. Paul's confidence to please Christ gave him endurance to overcome the trials and hardships of life, and he maintained his purpose even in the greatest of upheaval. But maybe you think this morning, okay, I understand this, but, but I think, why should I please Christ? I think Paul answers that helpfully for us, and he gives two reasons for us in the following verses. He gives us two reasons of why we should live a, a life that pleases Christ. And at first glance, these might seem in opposition to each other. They might seem antithetical, but I believe after we examine this a little bit further, we will find this to be a wonderful harmony by the end. And so first, why should I please Christ? Well, first of all, because God is watching. Where do we see this? In verse 10. For, uh, let me read verse 9 again to, to help us to get into this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Christian is urged to live a life pleasing to Christ because we will give an account. Of, uh, account. We're accountable to God for what we do. This judgment seat that is spoken of in verse 10 is... Um, metaphorical in nature for the, um, that, that the Lord will sit on to evaluate believers in the lives of what they have done. The, the, the Corinthians would have had a vivid illustration in their mind. It was, um, this word's translated bima. And it is used two other times in the New Testament. And, and um, the word bima is often referred to an elevated 
platform that athletes would stand on when they would receive their crown. The term was also used to refer to a tribunal bench in the Roman courtroom where the governor would sit and stand and to, to render his judicial verdict. This is where we see that Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. But I think maybe bestly uh, or, or uh, most helpfully, it, we see the athletic analogy here where Corinth, they would understand the platform and there is a verdict or a judgment or a congratulation based on what they've done. And here we see that Jesus is going to evaluate the believer for what they have done. Now this is not um, in nature a judgment referring to sin because Jesus has already paid our debt on the cross. It, 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 this is not a matter of, okay, you, you've done all these wrong things, but this is actually a matter based on what we do for the sake of, sake of the kingdom of Christ and how this is done in our lives. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And so there's this urging to live a life for Christ. Christ uh, also illustrates this in the Gospel of Luke, where he says to the servant who had grown an initial investment well, and he says to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you have authority over ten, ten cities. I can only imagine to go to this court, this elevated platform for athletes, and it is an experience to see that their merits are evaluated. God is watching. God is watching. We want to please Christ with our lives. Let me say, okay, I, I understand God is watching. We're going to give an account of what we do for the kingdom of Christ. But what is the other reason, the other motive for why you and I please Christ? Well, come down to verse 14 of chapter 5. It is because the love, God's love, constrains us. Verse 14 says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have, been, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls and constrains. It is the motivating pressure to activity for the believer. Paul's foundational motiv motivation for pleasing Christ in all of life is because Christ demonstrated this abundant love for him on the cross. Christ demonstrated this abundant love by dying. And so when Paul was going to Damascus and he was walking to Damascus and he saw Christ he was living a life that was motivated by hatred to persecute Christ followers and to show others that he was the best of all Jews. 
But when he saw Jesus Christ, he had that, that moment with Jesus. There was something that changed drastically his life, and he went from someone that hated Christians and being motivated by hatred to being someone that was motivated by love. I am no longer motivated by hatred, but I'm actually constrained by the love of Jesus Christ. And so what does this pressure cause? It causes the Christian to be enthralled by the love of Christ. In verse 15, it says this, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for who? Themselves. We no longer live so that we might find ourselves and what we do to be the most pleasurable thing of this world, but we might find that pleasing Christ and, and causing Christ to delight might be most wonderful to us. So how do we maybe summarize or put these two things together? He is a judge. He watches us. And that motivates us, but also his love constrains us. Well, let me give you an earthly example that I, I think might help us under, understand. I don't know, maybe you've heard about China's social credit system. The basic idea of this system is to encourage good social behavior by using China's massive surveillance system. So it's supposed to be online for all citizens of China in 2020. So how it begins is so every citizen is, starts with 1,000 points. And if you do bad things, your score basically gets docked. And if you do good things, you then have points added to your score. So for example, if you turn in someone's wallet and uh, the rightful owner is found, then you receive points. Um, and receiving points, receiving a better and better score means that you could get a better interest rate or you could save on your utilities. So there's this incentive to being a good citizen socially in China. However, you lose points by jaywalking or by be, being politically outspoken, not paying your mortgage on time, or maybe even buying too many video games. And all of these things can be seen by the China's massive surveillance system. So if you have a bad credit, you may say, well, what's the penalty for that? You can't buy an airplane ticket. You might not be able to go on a high-speed uh, uh, high train and have to take a bus back. Or uh, you can't apply for a loan or you can't send your children to private education. And the way that you end up actually getting your social score back up is by doing these good deeds, giving money to the, ch the charities that the government approves, giving blood, volunteering in your, in your society. And the, to top it all off, your photo is actually put in the town square if you have a bad credit. And so you are essentially shamed into doing the right thing. And so there's this massive surveillance system of what is good and what is bad, and you're praised for what is good and you're shamed for what is bad. And maybe 
we could look at this verse in chapter 10 and see, oh, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and think this is the, the structure that God works by. It, it, is this, it, is this a, a shameful thing? But the reality is all about motivation. This system is all intended to produce external conformity and the foundation of this system is used the controlling man's fears, fears to conform to society. It excludes love, grace, and mercy. And this is far different from our God. This is far different from who the God you and I know. And yes, He is watching. He is he's evaluating. He is desiring that you and I strive and bring Him honor, a life that is pleasing. However, it is much different. A more appropriate illustration would be like a son who has a good and loving father and desires to obey him. Just like that, that son is, is looking at his dad and says, I want to do the right thing because I know this will bring joy to my dad. Joy to my father. That is how you and I should view how the love of Christ constrains us. How our actions bring absolute joy to God. We delight in pleasing God and that in turn gives us joy. I'm bringing joy and pleasure to Jesus Christ by doing right, walking through this affliction. And so that the constant theme of the afflictions of our life is joy, is pleasing Christ, and you have this joy that motivates. Christian, there is joy in pleasing Christ. Paul's ministry was a roller coaster. He was on this roller coaster of life, and there were afflictions that you and I probably would say, that sounds terrible. But he had this constant theme, I will please Christ. And, and he had this constraining love that fueled his heart that was demonstrated on the cross. Maybe today you've, you're here for the first time. Maybe you've been here before. And you've heard us talk about the love of Christ. The love of Christ, we, we know this term as the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. That's what uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15 are talking about. How his death allowed you and I to have life. Maybe you're here today and you say, I am living for myself. I'm living, I, I, my sin is separating me from God, and I want to know the love of Christ, only the life that Jesus Christ could bring. I would love to talk with you. Someone else, maybe the person that brought you would love to talk with you so that you could know the love of Jesus Christ that constrains us. And may you and I today, even if we are under the pressure of the roller coaster of life, may we have the constant mission please him in everything we do let's pray together oh father we have looked at paul and his life 
was not probably what we would desire. But Lord, he had a mission that bubbled to the surface in everything he did, and that was to please you. So this morning, I pray that our hearts would find joy in pleasing you because of the the constraining love that we have because you saved us. Lord, I pray that we will bring honor and glory to your name this today and throughout the pressures of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.